our church finished up a short series in the first of the five books of the Psalms, the first 41 Psalms. And among all the things that we discovered together, I want to mention three this morning to introduce us to the three Psalms we're going to be dealing with. One thing that we discovered rather quickly is that the Psalter as a whole has to do with the outworking of the Davidic covenant. Someone said that when you read the Psalms, you have to keep your left eye on David and then your right eye on Christ. And to really properly interpret, you do have to keep an eye on David all the way through because it is an outworking of his covenant. Second thing that we discovered is that the first two Psalms, as you've probably noticed, are not personal. They're not headed with a title in which you have the author's name. In fact, what they are is programmatic. All of the themes that those psalms introduce are the very ones that are then being worked out through the entirety of the Psalter underneath the general understanding that this is the progress of the Davidic covenant. And the third thing that we discovered together is that the psalms are not really just strung together like pearls on a string, where their only unity is that they happen to all be found strung together. But that in fact, in many, many cases, they've been grouped in clusters. That there is commonality to two or three or more all together and that they've been placed in those groupings for a purpose. And that most certainly is the case with Psalms 3 through 5. And I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles there with me this morning. And the first thing that I want to do is point out in the texts themselves the primary thing that seems to make these three a cluster. There are common themes, as we're going to see, but I want to call your attention just to this one particular element. Would you look, please, at the fifth verse of the third psalm, where David, the author, testifies, I lay down and slept, so that's nighttime, I awoke. So it's the morning. And that's why many of the versions include, over the top of the superscription, that this was a morning prayer. Now, would you glance down with me, please, at the fourth psalm and look at the eighth verse. David again writes, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. So it's evening. And that's why in many of the versions, again over the superscription, it will state an evening prayer. And then if you look, please, at the fifth psalm in the third verse. In the morning, O Lord, second line, in the morning, I will order my prayer to you. So it's morning again. So the common element here is chronology. And really, when you put the three together, what you're really looking at is a 24-hour period of time, from one morning to the next morning, with the evening that's in between. Now, this is not to say that we can actually date It isn't like it's the fifth day of the fourth month of David's 30th reign. We're not given that kind of specificity. But we are told from the superscription over the third psalm 
the general period of time when it says that it's a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So we're going to think of it this morning as a single day in the life of David, a full 24 hours. And why is it that the Spirit of God has grouped these three psalms together at the very beginning of the Psalter? They are the first personal psalms, and it ought to be very obvious to us from that first superscription that these psalms, at least the first of them, is not at all in chronological order. Now that psalm is coming from late in David's reign. But the Spirit of God has jumped it all the way to the beginning of the personal psalms in the Psalter. It's the first personal psalm after the programmatic psalms. Well, the programmatic psalms just simply work this way. <clears throat> the first of them has to do with a single man, the blessed man. And the second psalm has to do with the world in which he's living. It's the world of the nations. The first two psalms are what it's like to be a Psalm 1 man in a Psalm 2 world. The Psalm 2 world is made up of all the nations ever since the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. It starts out asking the question, why do these nations rage against God and against his Mashiach, against his Messiah? And that second psalm takes you all the way through the entirety of world history until in the end, the Messiah breaks those nations like a potter's vessel. The images that we're getting now that are coming out of the Gaza Strip give you a little bit of an idea of what that looks like. When something in that region of the world is broken like a potter's vessel. That second psalm takes you all the way through until he does that and rules with a rod of iron. That expression is found three times in the last book of your Bible. The last time it occurs is in the 19th chapter when he returns to do just that, to strike the nations that have been in an insurrection the entirety of world history, he strikes them with a rod of iron. What's it like, folks, to be the person who does not walk in the counsel of ungodly people, and he doesn't stand in the way of sinners, and he doesn't sit in the seat of mockers, but he has to live that life in a Psalm 2 world? What was it like for David? What was it like for the Messiah? And then finally, you can come to application to yourself. What is it like for us? So I want to call your attention then to a single day in the life of such a person. And the first thing that I just want us to note together is what it is that we are going to most encounter. Look at the first verse of Psalm 3. Lord, oh Lord, how, how my adversaries have increased. That's the first line of the personal psalms, the adversaries. A number of years ago, 
had a leadership retreat that our elders and deacons had together at the wilds, we did an exercise that took a couple of hours, but we went through the entirety of the Psalter, all 150 Psalms, and we looked for all of the words for these people. And of course, there are many synonyms for them. You've got exactly how the first Psalm began, the sinners and the ungodly and the scorners. And they're also referred to by words like enemies and foes and those who oppose and those who are against me. You get all those expressions together. And we worked with a little chart and we went psalm by psalm through 150. And what we discovered is that these people are always with us. You can't ever get away from them. There are less than 30 of the Psalms in which they're not mentioned. You've got a few Psalms, and they're just filled with nothing but praise for God. But even at the end, with those last five Psalms, the Hallel Psalms, even there, they show up, clear at the end of the Psalter. And that, of course, is the thing that the Psalter is making very apparent. One of our men testified, very spiritually minded man, has been with us a long time, been with an elder for over 30 years, he said, you know, when I read those passages in the book of Psalms, he said, my tendency is to kind of blank out when I come to those expressions. Because he said, I don't really think so much of that having application to me. And I think that tends to be a tendency for all of us. We think to ourselves, that's Old Testament. That's the language of nations that are in opposition to each other. And, of course, that involves literal armies and munitions. That's not me. But actually, the New Testament quotes from both Psalm 4 and Psalm 5. It applies verses in the fifth Psalm to the very nature of people around us. The fourth Psalm quotes... Book of Ephesians quotes from the fourth psalm and applies it to our reactions to people. No question what these psalms are for us and that those enemies and adversaries around us are actually referred to in the New Testament. And of course, you know, folks, that nations are made up of individuals and the human nature has not changed an iota in all of these centuries. And the scripture does teach us that it is the very same elements, it's the same chemistry underneath in the human heart that is always underlying all war and disputation. These passages truly are here to teach us about that matter of our encountering the adversaries. And I want to call your attention to the thing that is their most prominent characteristic. Look again at that first verse, if you will. O Lord how my adversaries have what? Have increased. Look at the next line. Many. Look at the next line. Many. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. Many. In fact, the psalmist will refer to these people actually surrounding him. The thing that really stands out when you open your psalter, you're a Psalm 1 person, You're trying to meditate in the law of the Lord and apply it to life. You're living in this kind of world. 
you come to the first personal Psalms, here is this ubiquitous atmosphere populated by the wicked, the adversaries, and what is their most prominent characteristic? It is that they entirely outnumber you. Folks, their chief characteristic, and you see it all the way through the Psalter and all the way through the Word of God, it is their number. They are in the majority. That's what you're going to be aware of when you really try to walk with the Lord. I don't know how many of you have come here out of a public school background, but probably most, or maybe not most, but many of your professors probably did. The little junior high and high school that I attended in a small farming community in Kansas had 12 people in my graduating class. That was my class for five years, 12 people, until we moved to Erie, Pennsylvania my senior year, and my graduating class had over 600 people in it. There were literally twice as many people in that dorm, excuse me, twice as many people in my Uh, graduating class as the population of the whole town I grew up in. But you know what? There was something that was the same in both cases. I don't know how many of the 600 kids in my graduating class knew the Lord during that senior year. I never met any Christians. Clearly, the worldly were in the majority But you know what? It was the same in that little school that I was in in Kansas. Twelve people in my class, and 11 are in the one category in Psalm 1, and there are only two categories of people. The Psalter does not know anything of a third category. There were 11 in the one category, and I was desperately, as a teenager, trying to learn a little bit about how to be different as a child of God. And you find that out as you go into life, folks, and when you graduate, some of you go out into life, perhaps not necessarily in ministry, but in other occupation, you're going to find that that's always the case. It isn't just going to matter what profession nearly that you're in or every field. These people are always the majority. And these Psalms make very clear what the primary way they show their opposition is. And again, let me just call your attention to it in the text. Look at what chapter 3, verse 2 says. Many are saying. Look at chapter 4 and verse 6. Many are saying. Look at chapter 5 and verse 9. Their inward part, their throat, their tongue. That's the part that's quoted by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. What David is really distressed about here, you read those Psalms for yourself and you'll see it. It's front and center. The thing that is so distressing and debilitating to him is the speech. It's the constant verbal attack. You know, folks, we think to ourselves sometimes that we are people who by The mercies of the Lord do not experience persecution. That's true to an extent, isn't it? And yet when the Lord talks about this, in the last of the Beatitudes, he put it this way, blessed are men, blessed are you, when men shall revile you and persecute you 
and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Two of the specific three kinds of opposition that the Lord speaks of in that beatitude are verbal, not physical. And that's what you see all the way through this Psalter. It's the very thing that Psalm 1 began with. Their counsel. And the thing that is very distressing about this is that what they are constantly denying is the outcome of the choice that you've made. The choice that you've made is in light of Psalm 1, that this would be abundant blessednesses to walk in the law of the Lord. That is the very thing they most deny. And you'll see it right here in this text. If you look with me, please, at exactly the way they put this. Look at their language here, verse 2 of chapter 3. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Not for that man. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. Many are saying, who will show us any good? And these are not necessarily the adversaries. These are people around David. These are his companions, and they're completely dispirited. And they basically have accepted the viewpoint of the world around them, that this is not at all a way to be preserved and blessed. Folks, that's the very heart of the assault. It is that kind of counsel. It's that kind of verbiage. It's that kind of talk. Telling you as a Christian that God will not protect you, that this is not the way to get ahead in this life, that there actually is no future in the way you're living, that if you attempt to actually rule and to govern your household in that way, you have nothing, nothing in the future to anticipate except the loss of your kids in rebellion. You simply cannot follow God's ways in a world like this today. That's exactly the talk you'll encounter everywhere. And it brings us to the point where we actually have to once again take our spirits and walk with them right into those first two psalms and ask ourselves whether we believe them. Folks, nothing else in the Psalter is going to work until you come through those psalms believingly. That second psalm ends this way. Look at the line of it. Look at how it ends. How blessed. That's the way the two programmatic psalms began. The blessed man. Look at how they end. Look at the climax. There's a sandwich here. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Before you go out into that world, you're going to have to settle that. And then day by day, you're going to have to renew that, whether you believe that or not. When you watch the advertising on your television, when you surf the net, when you go to a ball game, when you read the news, when you see who the world highlights, when you see their worldly success, every bit of it seems to deny the choice you made. And you will have to decide again and again and again. And with your family, you'll have to make the case over and over and over. And if you go into the ministry, you will just have to keep encouraging your people week in and week out and week in and week out. Because when you're in that world, 
nearly everybody is against you and talking down on the choice you've made. And here's what really compounds it. I want to move you secondly to this. And that is the personal situation that is reflected in these psalms. Look again with me, if you will, please, at that psalm title of that third psalm, a psalm of David, when what? What was his circumstance? It's when he fled from his own, his own son. I want to ask you folks, when you read through the life of David, did he ever have any lower moment? That most certainly was David's lowest moment. And why was he having that moment? You remember that when God sent Nathan the prophet to deal with him, Nathan said, thus says the Lord, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. There is no lower moment. Folks, this is David's lowest point. And here's the worst of it. It's because of his greatest sin. And the Spirit of God has chosen to jump that first when you open the Psalter. When you come through the first two Psalms and you're determined that by the grace of God, you will be the blessed person who takes your refuge in the Lord. Yeah, but folks, what about your really low moments because of your really big failures? Well, you can almost be certain you will never have one this big. You almost certainly will not have one that affects a whole nation of people. So the Spirit of God wants us to read the very worst, your very worst day because of your very greatest sin. He wants us to read that first. And he wants us to see all the talk who would show a man like that any good? And these psalms here, folks, are here not to leave us crushed under that. They're here to coach us in what to do in that. And what we were told, I want to call your attention to it again at the end of verse 12 of Psalm 2, we're told that there is a blessing, actually an abundant blessedness for the man who will take his refuge in the Lord. Let me show you what you've got going on in these Psalms then. Look at chapter 3, Psalm 3 and verse 3. I realize I'm just dipping in here and there, but you've read them, or when we finish some point here in the week ahead, read it again, you'll see. Verse 3, what does he do? You, O Lord, are a shield. Now look at the language. All around me. You are a shield about me. Why is that important? Look at verse 6. I'll not be afraid of 10,000s of people. There, there's the business again of your being so completely outnumbered by those people. I'll not be afraid of them who have set themselves against me round about. So I need a shield round me. That's what he's talking about here. Look again, if you will, please, at chapter 5, verse 11. Let all who take 
Now, don't miss this, folks. This is how these psalms get tied together in clusters or how they develop one another's themes. Psalm 2.12 ended with, the blessed man takes his refuge in the Lord. Psalms 3 through 5, worst possible day because of my greatest possible sin. Those three psalms end with this stanza, verse 11. Let all who take refuge in you. They do 2.12. Look at the last line of that psalm. Look at the last line of verse 12. You surround that man with favor like a shield. Now, it ought to be apparent to us what we're being coached in here. We're being coached that the first thing is to take refuge in the Lord even when you are in this plight. I don't know how many of you have had the joy of reading through the diary and life of the Scottish preacher of the 19th century, Andrew Bonar. It's one of the classics of devotional Christian reading. Bonar was greatly used of the Lord. Revival periods in Scotland, lived to be over 80. In the end, he's pastoring a church in Glasgow that had begun with very few people. He has over 1,000 people every Lord's Day coming. My wife and I had the opportunity of seeing that building this summer. It's now nothing but apartments. It's flats, as they call them. But the Hebrew inscription is still over the door. Big double doors going in. It's all written in Hebrew. He that winneth souls is wise. Andrew Bonar was meeting with a group of younger pastors toward the end of his ministry, and someone asked him about how he had been able to continue on and to be so used to the Lord. Bonar responded, I can only say that for over 40 years, there's not been a single day that I've not taken refuge at the mercy seat. That's always the answer, isn't it? That's always the answer, folks. And you see that in this psalm. That's the first thing that we're being coached. Do that. Do that. Is it an Absalom period in your life? Do that. The blessing is still held out. Blessed is the man who takes refuge like that. And the last thing I want to call your attention to that's being coached here is what we're being shown is the way to do that. What is the way to take refuge? Bonar got it right. And David is exemplifying it. All three of those psalms are primarily prayer. What other way do I have of running to God but prayer? Folks, when you stop and think about it, the Bible says draw near to God. You and I do not draw near to God until we begin to pray. That's really true. You watch your own life, you'll see. When we open the Bible, we are letting God speak to us. There's a sense in which, yes, we're putting ourselves in a position, but you well know how often you read the Bible at a great distance from God. It's when you begin to approach God in prayer 
Now you're taking refuge to it. It's the only way you have of taking your refuge in him. And what you'll discover if you go through those three Psalms is that the primary thing that David prays about isn't his trouble. And it isn't his sin. People who teach us about Hebrew poetry speak of what they call colon or cola in the plural. Defined a little differently between those scholars. Some of them refer to a colon as a single line. Most of the verses in Hebrew poetry have two lines. Each of them is a colon. The two of them together are a cola. If you count the colon, the single lines in these psalms, they're over 60. And in 40 of them, David is talking to God about God. Folks, the primary way to take refuge in God is to pray to him about himself. And whatever your trouble or anxiety or sinfulness is, it is to build up like a wall, perfection after perfection, attribute after attribute, mercy after mercy of God, to speak to God, pray to the Lord about the Lord. When you do that, you're burrowing right down into the Almighty. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our time together today. Oh, Lord, how needy we feel ourselves day after day. We thank you that you have given to us this marvelous book filled with personal testimony. And grant that we may carry something away with us today that would enable us to face that world out there with confidence despite our own guilt and failure and immaturity. We take our refuge in you. We pray in Christ Jesus' precious name. Amen.